researchers want to hear from patients. Patients and their families want to be involved. Why is this so hard to do? My name is Kevin Fryert. My 30-year career at Pfizer gave me a chance to learn about many facets of drug discovery and development. When I retired, I started Salem Oaks to help patients understand the world of biopharmaceutical R&D so that they can be more effective partners and shape the future of medicine. We think that if patients and researchers got to know each other as people, the conversations would be much easier to start. Each month on Unprobable Developments, I will interview scientists, investigators, and patients who are actively working in medical research and development. Our goal is to help patients and those who care about them to get to know the kinds of people working on their behalf. We at Salem Oaks love to bring you these stories of the people who are involved in the science, process, and profession of finding and developing new medicines. In our Emerging Researcher series, we are even talking to people just entering the field, and we hope you're enjoying their fresh energy and new ideas. But we need to ask for your help in continuing to bring you this podcast. As creators, we are looking for patrons who want to help us cover our expenses to bring you this service. We have established an account on Patreon that you can use to become a member of the Salem Oaks Acorn or Sapling teams. Members receive exclusive benefits that you can read about at www.patreon.com slash Salem Oaks. Thank you for your support. We truly appreciate it. Today on Improbable Developments, we return to our Emerging Researcher Series. I am speaking with Chandra Trantham, who is studying for her PhD in genetics and genomics at the University of Florida. Chandra and I first met at a training day for the ambassadors of the Friedrichs Ataxia Research Alliance that was held in conjunction with the annual FA Symposium at CHOP, the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Chandra, can you tell us a little about yourself and how you got interested in studying genetics and genomics? Hi, thank you for having me on your podcast. So I am a Friedrich's ataxia patient, and I actually got interested in studying genetics and genomics because I have this rare disease that has no treatment available. So I was interested in learning as much as I could about how treatments become a reality and how things get developed. So I'm studying gene therapy not for FA, but for a different rare disease. But learning gene therapy for that helps me understand gene therapy for FA because it's a potential treatment for FA. Excellent. There's a lot to talk about there. So let's start with Friedrich's ataxia. How and when did you get diagnosed and what is Friedrich's ataxia? Friedrich's ataxia is a degenerative neurovascular disorder. It's genetic, so I had it at birth, but I didn't know I had it until syndromes developed around age nine. I started to lose my balance and things got progressively worse until I was diagnosed at 12. And since then, the disease has progressed more so. I'm losing my ability to walk independently. I use a walker now, and it's affecting my ability to speak for long periods of time, 
so I have to take breaks if I'm doing a presentation that's like an hour, two hours long. It also used to make me very fatigued, but I'm in a clinical trial that is helping. You talked about how it affects you today. Let's swing back to how you got interested in science. Was this something you liked as a kid? Yeah, so I've always liked science. I've always been interested in it. It was actually my favorite class in fifth grade, but having FA really pushed me towards exactly what kind of science I would be interested in. Um, back in fifth grade, I was interested in space and seeing if there are aliens out there. So FA definitely affected where I've landed. I always think back on my life and go, I wish I would have just followed my dream to be an astronaut. You know, <laughs> I would have loved it. I'm just, a, I love space stuff. And it just, it blows my mind when you think about what we could do and how big our universe is. That's not the direction I went either. So you started out as a kid. What le led you toward genetics and genomics and specifically what you're doing now? What is it you're studying today? Um, well, what led me to where I am now is I remember researching FA and not seeing. I was uh, 13 at the time, so this was 2010. I remember not seeing any research at all about treatments and development except for one compound, which didn't focus on the genetic aspect of the disease. I remember researching and trying to learn as much as I could, Googling like every word because I was 13, I didn't know genetics at all. I always got really interested in genetics because that's the root of the problem. And it's the root of a lot of problems for a lot of diseases problems. So if we can fix the genetics, we can fix the disease. It's not like a workaround. So I got really interested in that. And then in the past couple of years, gene therapy has really become a front runner in genetic therapies. And I knew that the University of Florida was kind of the birthplace of AAV gene therapy. What's AAV? AAV is adeno-associative virus. So it's a like a vehicle for delivering the drug to the body, the gene therapy drug. UF was really the birthplace for that. And then they're also developing a, a gene therapy treatment for FA in the lab that I'm working in. So I was very interested in joining this lab. I originally wanted to actually be a part of that gene therapy project, but now I'm working on a different disease. And what are you working on? What's the, the other disease? So it's an even rarer disease. It's called the gene that it affects is called TechPR2. It doesn't even have a disease name because it's so rare. Um, there's nine patients in the literature with the disease and five that my PI sees at UF. But it's a disease that affects autophagy, which is how the cell gets rid of waste that it develops. Um, so it's very important to the health of the nervous system. And so these kids that have the mutations in TechBR2 have a bunch of neurological symptoms and die early. So it's kind of a crossover to FA because FA is also neurological. But it's TechBR2 is something that I was able to make my own 
because the FA project is so far along already, which is good for me as a patient, but bad for me as a researcher because I couldn't really dig a claw into the project and call it my own because it was already so advanced. But TechPeer 2, I'm starting from the beginning, doing all the legwork to even create the idea of what I could make the gene therapy. So it's really my own project and it's really cool. I was going to say, that must be exciting to open up a new field like that, where there's dire need for a really small handful of people, but you've got like literally a handful, five, you know, in in your lab supervisor's uh, care. So that's pretty cool. That must have been a tough decision, though, as you went from saying, I'm going to, I'm going to work on FA. And it means a lot to me too. Intellectually, I need to go work in this other space because there's more room. Yeah, it was definitely hard, but it's not, it's not like I've been in FA completely because with this change in what I'm working on, I'm still working on gene therapy. I'm still learning all about that. I'm still in the lab that's developing the FA treatment. So I'm still around all of that research. And in my personal time, I still volunteer with the Friedrichs Ataxia Research Alliance and stay on top of all the research for FA. So it really doesn't feel like I've left the field, but yeah. It's just not going to be my PhD project, and that's okay. One of the things that makes looking for treatments for rare disease exciting and actually what makes people very good at it is getting a little bit broader view than just that one disease and looking for similarities, connections, and learning. So you're going to learn things about the gene therapy you're working on that could benefit FA and vice versa. It's very exciting. I mean, it's great to to see you find something like that and uh, and be able to grab onto it. Are you the only person that has physical disabilities in your lab? Yes, I am the only person. I think I'm the only person in my buildings. I don't see anyone else with. A, I mean, there are invisible physical disabilities, so I don't want to scratch that out, but. I'm the only person that I know of. And so how does that change working in the lab for you? It's definitely more difficult because instead of just doing everything myself that I want to, I need to work with people in order to get things done, like certain lab tasks that require a lot of dexterity and maybe time. So you need to do something very precise within 30 seconds. I can't do that. If I need to be precise, I need to take longer to make sure that I control my movements. And that doesn't work for some lab experiments. So I'm very lucky that my PIs or my lab supervisors are very accepting and willing to make anything possible so I can get my degree. So We have a lab technician that primarily works with me, and so he really helps me with all of these physical tasks that I need to do. And then on my end, I design the experiments and write out the schedule of what we're doing and stuff like that. That's great. I mean, it it really is wonderful to see that a lab can make those kinds of adjustments so that someone who's got the, the necessary tool 
a great brain can come and do this. Someone who's got the motivation can come and do this. And yeah, so someone else is actually using the pipette and, and doing things quickly. That doesn't change what's, what's really going on there, which is, you know, gaining knowledge about this disease. So what have you learned and, or what surprised you as you've been working on your degree? Honestly, I used to be very afraid of public speaking. It made me very nervous. And in this career and in what I do, what I volunteer for in my personal life, I really had to speak to a lot of different audiences. I've gotten a lot more comfortable doing that. So that was quite a surprise for me because I used to be a very shy person. And it surprises me because as I've known you, you're always the one with your hand up asking a question you know, and, or, or making a comment. That's great. That's great growth for everybody to, to be able to step out there. And, and when you know something, you can step up and say, Hey, I'm going to talk about it. And I know, I know more than everybody else out here. And what's made you most proud about your work so far? What's really made me most proud is how I've connected to others in the community. And then I can help in the FAA community. I can help them understand the science that I'm learning, even though it's not about FA, it's about gene therapy. And I understand the science of FA because my research in neurological diseases has really helped me with that. So I'm able to bring all that knowledge to the patient community and I can really help them understand what's going on in their bodies, what all these potential treatments in the pipeline mean. And I know that I know that it's really comforting for other people when they understand things because I'm that way. If I don't understand something, it makes me anxious. So I really like that I'm able to help people understand science better and bridge those gaps. I'm really proud of that. I think that's great because I've talked to a lot of those other people and they look up to you for exactly that reason, you know, and it's your ability to connect with them in, in a different way. Um, so you should be proud of that, very proud of that. When do you plan to get the PhD? When, how long is the program? It's hard to put a, an estimated timestamp on a PhD because it kind of just depends on what you're researching and how the research is going. But my program averages five years. So some people take four years, some people take six or seven years um hopefully i will be like in that five-year zone i'm a third year now um but we'll really have to see because i am working with mice and working with animals tends to make a phd longer so <laughs> we'll see yeah they don't always cooperate and there's time that needs to be taken to particularly when you're working in genomics and you've got to wait for for cycles of of offspring to come to see what's going on. Wow. And so a couple years, few years here, let's jump ahead in time and, and you've got the PhD. What are you doing with it then? So I'm not completely sure because I do love working in research, but I'm also very, very drawn to helping bridge those gaps in understanding. I feel like that's something I want to make a career out of that. I don't know how. Also, in bridging the gap between patients and the government. So policies that affect us, like the FDA approval process and things like that. 
So bridging that gap and bridging between patients and research, I feel like those three areas are really interesting to me and something that I would like to do in the future. So I'm not sure if that means staying in research or if that means trying to find a job at somewhere that works in, I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. I can think of a number of places where when you start to connect things like that, that people get interested, you know, and, and people are interested in doing so advocacy groups, obviously work for something like that, but, but also pharmaceutical companies, they want to know about patients more. And there really is a divide there. There is a connection to be made. Patients need to understand what's going on. And so whenever you have connections like that, and you're kind of bringing two parts of your, your knowledge to bear, it's attractive to people who are trying to get things done because everything's about connections now. What strengths do you think you bring just as a person beyond your brilliance in the lab and all of that? What else do you bring? I'm really good at reading people and understanding people. So I'm good at seeing what people need. And if I explain something and I'm able to. Uh, interpret whether they really understand it and then I'm able to tailor explanations and things to make to make that understanding better. Um I'm also really very I'm very type A so I like to do like do things correctly and get them done right. I don't just clean my house, I sterilize it. Um things like that. <laughs> <laughs> so diligence. Diligence is a big strength there. And what's your, one of the things that I thought was impressive when we first talked was when you spoke about working with the technician to get things done, I think my experience working, you know, through industry, starting in academia and working through industry, people who come in and have a really strong scientific background don't always have a people skill background. and. By working with someone else, working through their hands, you've got an advantage over many of the other people who will get the PhD at the same time you do, because you've already got that, that skill. So I would hang on to that and, and remember to trumpet it when you're talking to, to employers, you know, you, you know how to help people succeed and get things done. Yeah, that's great. I didn't think about it that way. <laughs> You know, there's never anything that's really a negative. It's just something that happens and you can learn from. So <laughs> mm -hmm. it's just how you word it. It's, how you word, it's the perspective <laughs> you take on it. It's, it really is, you know, an advantage um, to, to have something like that. So what's your scientific dream other than going to space? <laughs> um, my scientific dream for the future would be for the genome to be so much more accessible. So right now, the cost to sequence a genome is $500, and that's decreasing every year. Um, but I'm really excited for it to be something that's like $10, and then everyone can go and get their genome screened, and we can understand more about ourselves in terms of everything, the way that we interact with drugs in our body, seeing diseases that might pop up in the future in our genome that we can 
prepare for and prevent with medication, things like that. I feel like the answer to a lot of what we don't know yet in life is already contained within our genes. So I'm really excited for that to be accessible to everyone. Yeah, I saw a program once and they were talking about the about life actually being just a flow of information. And it's a flow of information through our genes. And everything, the entire human history is captured in what our genome is now, you know, the, the biologic history of it, and that you can, you know, unravel that and, and understand, you know, how to, how to manage some of the things that come along with life. So I'd like to turn the tables here a little bit and, and give you a chance to ask me questions. So that's what we do on this emerging researchers is kind of, you know, see what questions you have. Yeah, so I'm really interested in how you went from working in industry to starting a company where you work with patients. So how did that transition happen? Did you meet patients that kind of gave you a different perspective? Or So the short answer is yes. But the longer answer is that when you're working in industry, you don't realize how insulated from the patients you are. And I was in a, I started in the labs and I ended up running development projects. I was a project manager. And when you're doing clinical development, you think, oh, you're getting close to patients. No, there's many layers between you and the patients. There's your clinical people that are, that are actually, you know, MDs and, and qualified to be working with patients and the people who are the uh, monitors, the people who come out and, and run the clinical studies and make sure the data is good. You know, a lot of them are nurses and you think, oh, they're closer to patients, but they're not actually. They're closer to the paperwork that comes from the patients and the data. The, and then you, we have contract research organizations, which is another layer. And so somewhere out there, data is flowing from patients and that's what you see. My last three projects were rare disease projects. And that was the first time that I actually met patients. We brought them in to talk to us and tell us their stories and have a conversation, sort of. It was a one-sided conversation, it seemed to me. They were coming, they were talking to us, but we didn't know how to talk back. And we had all these rules, you know, don't tell them this, don't tell them that, don't ask them this, that, you know, you can get in trouble. I was like, okay, so we all just sat there and listened. Very near to the end of my my time at Pfizer, I we had a meeting, worldwide meeting project management, and we brought in a Parkinson's patient to tell us about clinical trials. And she was great. She's like you. She talks about the disease. She understands it. She understands what it, the impact is on her life. And then she was actually saying, like you did, she fatigues easily. And so she had accommodation she was making for herself to talk to us. And I sat there and listened, and then she just ripped us apart about our clinical trials and critiqued what we were doing. That opened the door, and so I started Salem Oaks because I went to her and asked, how did you do that? How did you speak our language? You, you were just perfect. And she actually had worked in the industry for a while, but the person from the foundation, the Parkinson's Foundation, also said that they train people. And 
I thought, oh, I can do this. I've been training people how to do R&D for, you know, 20 years now. And so I jumped in and, and started doing that. And that just brought me so close to patients so quickly. I was, it was, that was my big surprise was how organized, knowledgeable, motivated patients were to be working with us. But there seemed to be this, this gap between. And so I decided let's, let's close that gap somehow. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I'm glad that you ended up here. I'm always happy to see when you're going to be presenting for the FA community at our research symposiums. I've, I've met more people with FA than any other of the rare diseases. I think there's like 1,500 people in the U.S. with FA, and I probably know 70 of you guys where I could go and talk to you and say, hey, good to see you again. Um, and that's, that's like a measurable percentage, you know, of, of a very small dispersed, you know, group across the nation. So, and, and I, you guys are always just a lot of fun to work with too. Um, you know, everyone has a great, great frame of mind um, and great outlook on things. Anything else you wanted to ask me? Um, I don't think so. Do you have any advice for me on getting into a career where I where I'm working in that gap? I know you said there's a lot of opportunities for it, but where do you suggest I start? So the the easy answer to that is get the doctorate done. You know, <laughs> get get that side of it. But I would also say start reading and and looking at social media and looking for things like patient engagement and patient involvement, both are hashtags that you can just search for and look for the discussions that are going on. And then just go into your, your scientific mode again, ask people for, you know, is there an article about that or is, are there references, you know, and, and go back and do that legwork. The picture, it's, it's something, it's such a, a gaping hole that there's not, a lot there yet, you know. So what you'll, whatever you come up with, as you as you're thinking of it, you're going in the right direction because you're filling in the hole. Um, just like all of us who are trying to do this are, it's way too big a problem for like someone to go, oh, I got the answer. It's an app. <laughs> yeah, it's way bigger than that. So I would I would do that. Do your your literature research, and and look for communities, just like you've done with with FA. There's people out here doing that stuff. Society for Participatory Medicine is one I think of. I also, I'm on the board of Rare New England, and that's another group. So you look for regional groups that may be dealing either with FA or, or just rare disease in general. And then even more broadly, just patients, because it's, it's the same healthcare system we're all working in. Thank you. Good advice. So this has been great, Chandra. If people wanted to contact you, uh, where can they get a hold of you and get your attention? I suppose email would be the easiest thing. So it's, I'll spell it for you. It's my first and last name. So S-H-A-N-D-R-A-T-R-A-N-T-H-A-M at gmail.com. Great. So I'm expecting your email to fill right up now. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I hope nice. you have a, a great week coming up. 
Please subscribe to Improbable Developments wherever you get your podcasts. And tell your friends to give us a listen.